Okay, if we're set, uh, let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning to worship you. So we just pray that our time together, both in Sunday school and in church, would be would be used to glorify you, to for us to develop a close relationship with you and just be able to better better trust your promises, trust your word. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we can see up here, we've got uh, we've got a nice picture from uh, from our fellow congregants here, the Gonzers, the Williams, and the Tomjis in uh, over in Israel. So there's a nice picture of the Sea of Galilee. So it'll be interesting to hear what they have to say when they get back. Okay, the message this morning: Did dinosaurs coexist with man? And it may seem like kind of a way out topic, kind of like UFOs, but I think as we go through this, we'll see that it really boils down to something very important, really critical, and that's the two worldviews, one being creation, as God describes in the Bible, the other being evolution, which is the, sort of the foundation for all sorts of different, uh, different beliefs. So um, in order to illustrate that, uh, Creation Ministries International, I saw they did a survey of college students and those that have grown up in the church, I think it's well known, many different surveys show this, about two-thirds to three-quarters of them, once they leave home, go to college, they leave the church. And the survey was done, they did interviews with these students, and the one consistent message these students got, the ones that did grow up in the church, they believe in evolution, not creation. <clears throat> and they were asked, well, did your church ever provide any scientific evidence to support the creation account rather than evolution? And consistently the answer was no, 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 or I don't know, I don't remember. So, um, so it is critically important, I think, that as a church we not just teach the Bible, but we also teach where, where we touch, where we interface with the world and the opposing worldview that we're armed with not just biblical truth, but also truth from the world around us that supports our belief in creation. And believe me, as we will see, <clears throat> the evidence is on the side of creation, not evolution. Uh, now, most of you probably know you don't find the word dinosaur in the Bible. Well, that's because it wasn't really coined until 1841 by a British uh, he was an anatomist, a biologist, and paleontologist. His name was Sir Richard Owen. And he was actually an ardent foe of uh, Charles Darwin, too. So uh, if you got the King James Bible, you'll find that over 20 references in the Old Testament do refer to the word dragon. So... As we get in, there's going to be some science involved here. And if you were here two weeks ago, you remember that there are really two basic types of science. One is operational or process science, where you can, you know, whatever you do, it can be observed, it can be tested, and it can be repeated. And the other science is historical science or origin science. And that's where you take what we see now and you try to go backwards into time and come to some conclusions regarding what happened in the past. And where science and religion or science and Christianity clash, it's in this second type of science, the process, the, not the process science that we can 
you know, we can boil water, and it's the same. It's going to boil at this. If you're at sea level, it's going to boil at 212 today, tomorrow. As long as you do that experiment, you can observe it, you can test it, you can repeat it. So, I mean, that, that type of science has given us the advances that we have today in just, you know, so many fields, you know, aviation, uh, engineering. Uh, you know, it's a very valid science. I think the problem is people are so impressed with that kind of science that they assume that just because it's called science in terms of dating and getting an old earth, that that carries the same weight. And I think we'll find out that it, it really doesn't. So as I said, yeah, references in the King James uh, over 20 times refers to a dragon. Now, some of the newer translations, like I got New American Standard down here, it can be serpent or dragon in Psalm 91.13. It's actually translated jackals in Jeremiah 9.11, monster in Jeremiah 51.34, and sea monster in Job 7.12. As I said, two worldviews, the evolutionary view or paradigm is did dinosaurs coexist with man? No. Dinosaurs really evolved you know, millions of years ago and predated humans by millions of years. The creation view, on the other hand, is yes, dinosaurs were created by God at the same time he created man on the sixth day of creation. So you know, paradigm, or it can be called a construct, it's just a distinct set of concepts or thought patterns, including theories, research message, m- methods, Postulates and standards for what constitutes legitimate contributions to a field. And as we'll see, if you're a real adherent to a certain paradigm, a certain worldview, you get evidence that doesn't comport with that, you'll tend to reject it. So the evolutionary paradigm is that the world is approximately four and a half billion years old. And this number keeps growing. Uh, and, the, and their further view is a subset of that is dinosaurs. First of all, in the middle Triassic period, which is approximately 240 million years ago and became extinct approximately 65 million years ago. Now, this view became popularized. It didn't start out at four and a half billion years. It probably started out about a billion years, but it was very early 19th century uh, when people started looking for natural explanations to the origins of the universe, you know, and sort of rejecting, well, no, really, God didn't do this. Let's look for some natural views. And the old earth view came out of that desire to leave God out of it because if you believe in evolution, all these processes had to have taken you know, incredibly long periods of time. So that's, uh, that's, how, we, that's how we got started there. Uh, interesting, too, the, uh, there's a man named Charles Lyell that argued for a very ancient earth geology, and that was the very book that Charles Darwin took along with him to read when he got on the Beagle and took that first voyage of his. So that was the backdrop for his, you know, taking this old urge, old earth view and applying it to biology and coming up with his theory of evolution.
decade, the last 30 years or so, have proven to be difficult for evolutionists to deal with because we've had some, you know, marvelous, marvelous discoveries, uh, including the discovery of soft tissue, including red blood cells and dinosaur bones, discovery of DNA fragments and dinosaur bones. And the first time this was discovered is back in the 1990s. Uh, there was a doctor, I believe, from North Carolina, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, that as they were looking closer at dinosaur bones, they found soft tissue, very, I've seen the films, very elastic tissue. And putting under a microscope, there was red blood cells that were obviously there. And her first comment was, well, these can't be there. You know, because I know this, it was a T-Rex bone that was supposedly 65, 66 million years old. And she said, this just cannot be. So they kept redoing tests and tests. And no, that's, that's exactly what it was. And then she also went on to discover some fragments. And pro they found proteins, sort of the precursor to the, uh, to, to the DNA fragments. So she found those too. And really, she had a very difficult time dealing with this because she was an evolutionist herself, although her, some, her background in terms of, of, of spiritual or religious beliefs indicate that she is a kind of a churchgoer, but she still believes in old, old earth age and uh, certainly in, in evolution. And she had a difficult time getting her results published because this just didn't fit the paradigm of an old earth because it just is not possible. These things don't last for that long. It would be a miracle if they lasted you know, thousands of years, uh, let alone millions of years. So, in fact, one researcher told, them, you know, told her they didn't want to publish her data, and she said, well, if you, won't, if you won't believe this data, what data would it take to get you to publish this, to get you to believe that this is what we found? And he said, none. So, sort of the don't confuse me with facts, my mind's made up, that position, and that's what, uh, that's what evolutionists tend to uh, take. Uh, also, we have, we've had the discovery of carbon-14 in dinosaur bones, and carbon-14 just disappears. At, I've got 70 to 100,000 years here. I found something in the meantime that said, well, it, it, even at 50,000 years, the carbon-14 is gone. So once again, these bones contain things, you know, elements that just simply, simply shouldn't be there and don't fit with... Uh, don't fit with what, what the dating that they put these things at. And just as an aside, since carbon-14 is probably the most familiar you know, dating method that people use, when I say 50 to 100,000 years, that's assuming, that's assuming some things that probably aren't true because carbon, there's more carbon-14 flowing into our whole world system than is escaping it, so actually the carbon-14 level is building up so things that they're dating using carbon-14 are dating much older than they probably really are. And we can't, we can't go back and, and measure. You know, once again, this is the historical origin science uh, field, so we can't really go back and measure things. But other thing that would have changed is the flood would have buried tremendous amounts of carbon, all sorts of carbon, whether it's the normal carbon-12 that we see or the carbon-14. Uh, and that's what's in. That's what's what created all these uh, all these dinosaur bones. All these other bones was you know very rapid flood, and uh, so like I say, it, it it makes it makes the samples test older than they really are. And that's what gave us the you know the oil, the fossil, so-called fossil fuels, 
was the flood bearing all these things very rapidly. So that, that's where we got oil, gas, coal. Uh, so looking at these radioactive datings, you know, failures, radio methods that they really, you know, rely heavily on. Um, as you can see, New Zealand, 1948, there's a mountain on the North Island of New Zealand, so they had a major eruption in 1948, estimated 20 million cubic feet of lava flow. 1954, another huge amount of lava flow. 1974 and five, another huge bunch of, uh, of lava flow. So in 1996, so less than 30 years from the first lava flow, uh, they took 11 samples from these eruptions and were sent to a commercial laboratory in Boston. And using the potassium argon dating method, the isotope potassium 40 will decay into the isotope argon 40. And that's what they used to, um, that's what they used to claim that the Earth is, is all these billions of years old. So anyway, the, that testing on rocks, on lava rock that we knew were less than 50 years old, in some cases only about 20 years old. The samples yielded ages ranging from 270,000 years to three and a half million years. Once again, obviously wrong, because you know, we, we, we know when those rocks were formed. Uh, Mount St. Helens, a very similar th thing. There was an eruption in, in 1980, and it deposited let me see if I got the figure. Deposited uh, lava in that crater that was left by the volcano exploding. That crater uh, finally resulted in lava rock 1,100 feet high and up to 3,500 3, feet in diameter. So in 1992, just 12 years after that, uh, there was a geologist, uh, Steve Austin, who collected samples of this, sent them to, once again to a commercial laboratory had them date, date those rocks using the same method that the ancient rocks that we don't know the age of were dated. So the whole rock samples, the calculated age was 350,000 years. And one subsample of a mineral in there, they said, was, it was about 2,800,000 years old, plus or minus 600,000 years. So if there's a, that spectacular failure is testing rocks that we know the age of, you know, within 50 years and saw the rock, rocks develop, you know, why would we think they're accurate in testing the ages of rocks that we have no idea when they were formed? So if we contrast that evolutionary model to the creation model, you know, we start with Genesis 1-1, which we all know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that's, uh, you know, we got the words of Jesus uh, in Mark 10-6, supporting that saying, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So the Bible is clear on just what happened. And just as an aside, the implication, if you do accept the evolutionary worldview in spite of you know some of the evidence against it the implications for the bible are really significant too because it would mean that somehow these animals there was death suffering before adam and eve caused sin so it just doesn't it, it just doesn't fit with the biblical worldview that there was any death any life really before god created 
Adam and Eve on the sixth day, other than what he created on the first day. So all land animals were created on the same day as man, if you look at Genesis 1, 24 through 26. Uh, would someone read that? If we turn to Genesis 1, 24 and 26, and someone would be willing to read those three verses. And if anyone has any questions or okay, Mike, if anyone has any questions or comments as we're going through this, please raise your hand and, and we'll take those. Okay, Mike, go ahead. You see 24 through 26? Right. This is the Holman's uh, Christian Standard Bible. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock in all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. That's 26. Do you want 27 too? Okay, well, yeah, why, don't you, why don't you skip and read verse 30. Skip and go to 30, okay. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Thank you. So on the sixth day, God created, it says, all the land animals. If there were any, that would include uh, dinosaurs, which we know existed because the fossils, you know, don't lie. Those are real creatures. And God, based on this, God created them the same day that he created man, sixth day of creation. And verse 30 shows that everyone, all these animals and man, uh, there were no carnivorous beings, you know, initially anyway. God created everyone to eat the plants vegetarians, herbivores. Okay, if we look at Genesis 6, 19 through 20, would someone want to read those two verses? Okay, go ahead, Mike. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. Thank you. Uh, a couple of things to notice, two of every kind, and that, that every kind is, is repeated from the sixth day of creation and earlier in Genesis, uh, there in, in 124 through 26. And what the kind really refers to is everything, like a horse and a zebra would be in the same kind. Anything that can reproduce, it's at that level that the kind is. So all cats, from a tiger to a, a little kitty cat, those would be considered in the same kind because they can reproduce um, within that kind. So other thing to note is that Noah didn't have to go out and gather these gather these animals up, you know, God said they will come to you. So God really is the one that went out and selected these animals. 
So, you know, is the arc big enough? How many, you know, just what, what did that look like? And it didn't, it, do, it didn't look like what we see depicted in maybe cartoons or kids' books now with animals, you know, kind of flopping out, leaning over the deck, sticking out, their heads out the windows. Uh, the size of the arc provided one and a half million cubic feet of space. And I think it's estimated, including animals that have gone extinct now, there are probably maybe 8,000 different kinds of animals. So that would have been about 16,000 16, animals themselves. Now, some of the dinosaurs that we see the fossils of are just humongous creatures, but God wouldn't have, I don't think, selected those you know, fully grown old dinosaurs. It would more likely have been, I uh, would have picked teenagers, so to speak, or ones at the very beginning of their reproductive cycle. You know, they were much smaller. You know, reptiles continue to grow throughout their whole life. Uh, so it, it, it would have made no sense for God to, for God to do that. So yes, there was plenty of room. Uh, there may be 600 named dinosaurs right now, approximately, but estimates range from 50 to 80 actual kinds of dinosaurs. And some of them are as small as a chicken. So this really, as you would expect, you know, God wouldn't have asked Noah to do something that would have you know, provided an incredible you know, difficulty or you know, insurmountable problem. God, God had that covered. So if we continue with the creation model, we look to the book of Job. And Job is one of the very oldest books in the Bible. We don't know who wrote it. But just you know, gleaning some facts from that book, uh, you know, it was probably, you know, Job was probably alive somewhere after the Tower of Babel and either before or contemporaneously with, with Abraham, just based on how long he lived. Uh, Abraham lived 175 years. Job lived just short of 200 years, it looks like. So that fits with the patriarchal age. Um, you know, other hints were that you know, his wealth was measured in livestock, not gold and silver. The Chaldeans that you know killed his servants. It looks, you know, the description of them. They were still a nomadic culture. They hadn't really gathered into cities yet, too. So, so that's the best estimate is uh, is putting it in that time frame, either before, before or contemporaneous with Adam. And I'm <laughs> Abraham. Thank you. Um, Job is directly quoted twice in the uh, New Testament, Romans 11.35 and 1 Corinthians 3.19. Uh, Ezekiel, James refers to him in, in uh, James 5, verse 11. Uh, Ezekiel 14, 14 and 20 referred to Job. And Job himself, from Job 31.33, he knew about Adam. And Job 12.15, he knew about the flood. So... That's kind of a backdrop for Job. He was, a, you know, pretty, pretty clearly a real, a real historical person. So, can we turn to Job thirty-eight, thirty-nine through thirty-one?
And there's someone who would like to read those verses. Yeah, Job, uh, oh, Job 38, 39 through 41 here. Um, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait for the, in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Okay, thank you. As we see, as we start this section uh, where God's asking Job many rhetorical questions having to do with, you know, Job wasn't there when God created all these creatures, and Job really doesn't have, you know, doesn't have the answers for this. But anyway, starting in verse 38, what, what Eric just read, as we go through chapter 39, we'll see that in each case, when he talks about these animals, he's talking about real flesh and blood animals that we, st- we can still observe today. So as we get to, um, we get to Job 39, verses 1 through 30, it's kind of a long section. But if someone would like to read that, or part of it anyway. Steve, looks like Steve is... Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down, they bring forth their young. They get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring becomes strong. They grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return to them. Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I gave the wilderness for a home and salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you, or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? The ostrich's wings flap joyously with a pinion and plumage of love. For for she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust. And she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with, ma- with a mane? Do you make him leap like a, the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. 
and he does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground, and he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he scents the battle from afar and thunder of the captains and the war cry. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges, upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food. His, he eyes it, his eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. Thank you, Steve. You know, in each case, the, uh, sort of the purpose for doing this before we get into Job 40 and 41, where he describes the, the two beasts, it should be noted that each one of these animals, each one of these creatures that God's describing to Noah real flesh and blood animals we can still see you know none of these have gone extinct yet we can still see them and the passage about the horse is particularly interesting because you know, maybe some of you have seen it too i've seen footage of world war ii battles with the horse cavalry and it's just it's it's unbelievable that those horses you know would do that in the midst of bombs going off gunfire and everything those horses were so trained and so obedient that they just you know, marched off to battle. It's, I still find that just totally, totally astonishing that we can get horses to, to do something like that. So now we get to Job 40, where he deals with a creature called Behemoth, in chapter 41, where he describes a creature called Leviathan. So I'd like to skip to Job 40, verses 15 through 24, and see if someone would like to read those verses for us. Bob, thank you. Look at... Oh. All right, I got to turn my cell phone. Okay. <laughs> Hello. All right, I got a dead mic, and I have no idea why. Somebody else? We'll get the microphone, Bob. Thank you. I should have tested that before. That's on me. Actually, it did work before. Okay, here we go. Verse 15. Look at B. Behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. Look at the strength of his loins and the power in the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree. The tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His bones are bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. He is the foremost of God's work. Only his maker can draw the sword against him. The hills yield food for him. While all sorts of wild animals play there, he lies under the lotus plants, hiding in the protection of marsh, marshy reeds. Lotus plants cover him with their shade, 
and the willows by the brooks surround him. Though the river rages, Behemoth is unafraid. He remains confident, even if the Jordan surges up to his mouth. Can anyone capture him while he looks on or pierce his nose with snares? Thank you. I mean, does this description sound like any animal that any of you are aware of? <laughs> crocodile, okay. Uh, crocodile is probably the most common explanation for what Leviathan is, and hippopotamus is the most common ex early explanation for what behemoth was. But I think if you look at the description, the one, look at verse, look at verse 17 in particular, and I think this rules out the hippopotamus and the elephant because there's no stretch of the imagination could you compare an elephant's tail or hippopotamus's tail with a cedar tree, you know, which are just huge, big trees. And it's interesting, the, I think Bob, uh, Bob's translation said, what did it say in verse 17? He, what does he do with his tail like a cedar, Bob? Stretch? It says he stiffens his tail like a cedar tree the tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. So he stiffens it like a cedar tree. Yep, which a hippopotamus couldn't, you know, like I say, there's no, no way you could mistake a hippopotamus's tail for a cedar tree. And the whole word uh, there, the, I mean, New American Standard says uh, he bends his tail like a cedar. The, the, the Hebrew word that stiffens or bends or swings or hangs it's a very difficult word. Job has more Hebrew words that are not found nowhere else in the Bible than any other book in the Old Testament. So, but regardless, I think the comparison is of a cedar tree. You know, it's large, it's strong, and it just doesn't really fit any known animals. Although, like I say, in your, in your study Bibles, you'll certainly, in commentaries going back a ways, you'll certainly find hippopotamus as being the most common explanation. But um, Really, it describes better as, as, as we go on. A, a, a sauropod was a type of dinosaur, very much like that, that. When they discovered the fossils and put the skeletons together, it had an extremely large tail. So let's go on to Job 41, and really the whole chapter there where he describes Leviathan. If someone is up for any lengthy reading there, I got my mic fixed. All right. Go ahead, Bob. <clears throat> Can you pull in Leviathan with a hook? When I'm fishing, sometimes we joke when we have a big one on, we call yeah. him Leviathan. <laughs> or tie his tongue down with a rope. Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce a, his jaw with a hook? Will he beg you for mercy or speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? so that you can take him as a slave forever. Can you play with him like a bird or put him out on a leash for your girls? Or will traders bargain for him or divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or, or his head with fishing spears? Lay a hand on him. You will remember the battle and never repeat it. This is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. <laughs> Very good uh, translation. Yes, yeah, a good translation. Any hope of capturing him proves false. Does a person not collapse 
at the very sight of him? No one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan. Who then can stand against me? Who confronted me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I cannot be silent about his limbs, his power, and his graceful proportions. Who can strip off his outer covering? Who can penetrate his double layer of armor? Who can open his jaws surrounded by those terrifying teeth? His pride is in the rows of scales closely sealed together. One scale is so close to another that no air can pass between them. They are joined to one another so closely connected they cannot be separated. His snorting flashes with light while his eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flaming torches shoot from his mouth. Fiery, fiery sparks fly out. Smoke billows from his nostrils as from a boiling pot or, or burning reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames pour out of his mouth. Strength resides in his neck and dismay dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, solid as metal and immovable. His heart is as hard as a rock and as hard as a lower millstone. When Leviathan rises, the mighty are terrified. They withdraw because of his thrashing. The, the sword that reaches him will have no effect, nor will a spear, dart, or arrow. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. No arrow can make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. A club is regarded as stubble, and he laughs at the sound of a javelin. His undersides are jagged potsherds and spreading the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths seethe like a cauldron. He makes the sea like an ointment jar. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had gray hair. He has no equal on earth, a creature devoid of fear. He surveys everything that is haughty. He is king over all the proud beasts. Okay, thank you, Bob. Once again, crocodile is the probably the earliest and most common answer to what this animal was, but this really this really doesn't describe a crocodile. The Egyptians hunted crocodiles. We have plenty of pictorial evidence of that where they've shown, you know, Egyptians killing crocodiles. So this beast described here was just way different than that. No one could no one could attack this beast as as, as that one verse that was read. Uh, you know, you're not going to repeat. You know, you're not going to make that same mistake again. So, other thing I'd like to point out is the 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 part where it talks about uh, out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth, and certainly we've got descriptions of dragons. Uh, throughout the Middle Ages, anyway, and in fairly recent times, of fire-breathing dragons. Uh, they're extinct now, whatever it was, but there is still a, an animal that is alive today. It's called the Bombardier uh, beetle, and it is actually capable of doing this kind of thing. It's got a couple of chemicals that it stores in two different chambers in its body, and when it's threatened, it can bring those together. It's got some sort of internal ignition uh, mechanism that they can fire off, and that's exactly what'll happen. It'll shoot out, uh, you know, hot 
hot chemicals uh, that would sort of mimic this. So both of these creatures, yeah. go ahead, Eric. Yeah, uh, I just noticed also in verse 27, he regards iron as straw. This is the NASB. Mm -hmm. uh, he regards iron as straw, bronze as what? rotten wood. And I don't know, I'm not enough of a historian to know when the Iron Age and the Bronze Age were, but in other words, when this, in other words, uh, uh, iron and bronze were were in evidence yes. during this time, and he's describing this beast as well. So this beast had to have been alive when iron and bronze were were invented, yes. I guess. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, you know, I think what, what we can say for sure is these descriptions don't fit any known animals that are alive today or that we know of. Yeah. Uh, you know, were they dinosaurs or dragons, you know, according to the Bible? You know, we don't know. That certainly the, the, the descriptions certainly match some known dinosaurs that we have. So, but we wouldn't want to be dogmatic and say, yes, absolutely, this is what God's describing. But I think knowing the context starting in chapter 38, we can say that these were not mythical beasts. It wouldn't make any sense for God to ask Job, all these questions about real flesh and blood animals, and then all of a sudden switch into this thing where he's asking him questions about mythical beasts. It, it would just uh, it would just make no sense. Okay, uh, let's let me do this. Okay, there. What you're seeing up there is uh, it's a picture. Can you see that all well enough? Okay, good. It's, um, that was taken at the Angkor Temple in Cambodia, and this was created, this carving in stone, about 1200 A.D., and there's great, very great detail there. And we've got depictions like this of animals that certainly look like dinosaurs that we've discovered, put the skeletons together. Uh, and if, you know, things like this, I've only got three examples, but there are examples from every continent on Earth except for Antarctica uh, of creatures like this that you know, bear resemblance to known dinosaur species anyway. Um, so some have said, well, it's just decoration, but if you particularly note those, uh, those scales or, or what would you call them, those teeth on the back, uh, that's you know very much looks like a stegosaurus dinosaur, and how would those artists how would that artist have carved that without seeing that? Fossils weren't discovered for hundreds of years, and really it's only been the last maybe 120 years that I think paleontologists have been able to accurately put dinosaur skeletons together. So for the artist to come up with something like this without having seen one of these creatures, I think is highly unlikely. But by the way, no Stegosaurus fossils have ever been found in Cambodia, so that kind of adds to the mystery a little bit too. Okay, the next slide, I don't know how, 
you can see that. That is uh, Bishop Bell's brass behemoth, and there's in England. And Bishop uh, Bell was a was a bishop in the probably the Anglican Church. And when he was born in 1410, and the date on his grave is 1496. And this is actually covered by a rug now, but this is in the floor, covering his tomb. And this looks uh, remarkably like a sauropod <clears throat> dinosaur. And once again, how would, you, how would you depict accurately a creature like that <clears throat> if you hadn't seen it, either alive or dead? So that, and that's 1500, 1496. OK, this, you can't probably see the detail. <coughs> But this is a bronze wine vessel that was unearthed in uh, the Hunan province in China. And it dates back to the third century BC. And like I say, you probably can't see it that well, but there's, there's four of these animals, one on each side. And it may depict uh, you know, a sauropod type of, of, uh, of dinosaur as well. And interestingly enough, the earliest descriptions in China, the earliest book on this, on these wine, this wine vessel, the animals are described as being in the, in the shape of a dragon. Now, what else is interesting is when this was, this was actually taken on tour of the United States, and the official explanation was that it was a, it was a feline. So you decide, does it look like a cat, or does it look more like a creature that we know as it being a dinosaur? Further support, uh, the Chinese lunar calendar cycle has 12 symbols. 11 are real known animals. The 12th symbol is a dragon. And once again, it's, it's kind of circumstantial evidence, but it makes sense that if the 11 are known real live animals, then why would the 12th be a mythical creature? It's probably a real live animal too. Uh, I'm sure we've all heard of Marco Polo. The Travels of Marco Polo is a book that he wrote. He lived from 1254 to 1324, and he recounts seeing dragons, once again, in China. And he described one such beast as being 30 feet long, 8 feet high, which lar large claws and, and teeth. And I've got a couple other examples that I don't have written in here, but let me just read them to you. In 1405 in England... There was a chronicle, and here, here's the quote from what was published. Close to the town of Burris, near Sudbury, there has lately appeared to the great hurt of the countryside a dragon, vast in body, with a crested head, teeth like a saw, and a tail extending to an enormous length. Having slaughtered the shepherd of a flock, it devoured many sheep. This is 1405. 900 A.D., an Irish writer recorded an encounter with a large animal with thick legs and strong claws and described it as having iron nails on its tail. Once again, that's a pretty good description of a stegosaurus. So clearly, I think dinosaurs existed with man at least up, up through the flood. Uh, we know that. We've got the, we've got the fossil records. Uh, showing, you know, just millions of them buried at the same time in a flood. How long they lived after the flood, you know, I guess we can't be certain. But once again, these medieval examples, and there's just a ton of them, of drawings and stories of people encountering them well into the Middle Ages. So, uh, you know, I think it's probably 
probably likely that they died out like many other land animals have that have gone extinct. Now it was some cataclysmic, total cataclysmic event, but just over time as they, as they got to be hunted, maybe the habitat changed, the climate changed. I mean, you know, they're not the only animals that have gone extinct uh, since they were created and since the flood. I list some resources here, and there's really, the, the first one, Creation Ministries International, just a tremendous website, uh, anything having to do with creation versus evolution. Uh, they've got literally hundreds and hundreds of articles. Institute for Creation Research is also very good. Answers in Genesis. Uh, creation Research Society, I didn't include their, web, their website, which is creationresearch.org. Uh, David Reeves Ministries is also very good. There's a book that I didn't get, but I've read about it. It's called Dire Dragons by Vance Nelson. And in that book, he, of all these drawings of various dinosaurs, what he's done is he's thrown out all the ones where there's any question whatsoever about what this thing is that the artist is being depicted. He's got only examples in there that match up in very great detail with known dinosaurs that we've found. So that's a great, that'd be a great resource too. And just in summing it up, as I kind of started out saying, I think this is tremendously important because our educational system is teaching the kids evolution. It's not about education, it's about indoctrination. My daughter interviewed for a job this week teaching school, and it was interesting. She asked what the student culture was there, and I won't give the exact description, but there was a description given that was supposed to be uncomplimentary. It sounded like a lot of people like us were the parents, grandparents of those students there. But anyway, what she told my daughter was, but we can change the students. And that's the mission of the world. That's the mission of the educational system, is to indoctrinate our children about all sorts of things, fundamentally in terms of, you know, fundamentally evolution versus creation. So I think it, this can be a great witnessing tool, a great evangelistic tool. Uh, so, Von, go ahead, or I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay. Because uh, really, we shouldn't shrink away from discussing these dinosaurs because the facts, the data are really on the side of creation. Uh, and this just kind of is a very high level view of that too. If you dig into any of these areas in detail, you become even more convinced that it's creation all the way and evolution has nothing to do with it. I know there's some within Christendom that subscribe to a theistic evolution and just kind of wanting to compromise with the world, not wanting to be labeled anti-science, but it's not really anti-science to stick to the literal Little view of Genesis that God did create the world in six days, and it wasn't that long ago. I'm sorry, go ahead. Did you have a question or comment? Oh, well. Get, they'll get you a microphone. It, it might be that I fit into that category with some sort of con compromise. Mm -hmm. um, you have included in, in some of your discussion things like um, um, creatures dying out, you know, um, it sounds like there are parts of the um, evolutionary discussion that you agree with, you know, that animals can change, that um, it's just the issue of creation. I just wonder if there's a false dichotomy here. I, I wonder if there's space for science. Because it sounds like there is for you. That, that's all. That Sometimes we create a, a larger gap between us than perhaps exists. Okay, thank you. 
I'll go ahead. We're done here? Okay. Um, some of the early cartography, when they were doing some nautical uh, making of maps uh, for early naval people, uh, they would have beyond this point where, they, uh, where, where there was unknown, there'd be dragons. And that is to say the unknown. And when it comes to the unknown, we always think it to be evil, or, uh, but whatever it is, it's something we cannot harness. And nobody was there at the, at the beginning that said God created, uh, you know, nobody was there with a Polaroid camera. Nor at Revelations when it says um, uh, the incredible, fantastical things which we are revealed to us as the elect. Uh, what's happened? Nobody's going to be there with a Polaroid camera saying, and this is, so we're trying to fit what the unknown is into our box of understanding. And we just can't lean on our understanding. We got to take so much by faith. And uh, we have scripture, and we let's just stick with the scripture and uh, see what it says. Um, that's what I wanted to share. Okay, well, th- th- uh, thank you very much. Uh, both of you, what I would comment about on the false dichotomy, I think what happens with evolutionists is they're sort of tricky. They'll change the thing. They'll say things change, you know, so that's evolution. And really things change, yes, but only within their own kind. Uh, you can't, you know, a, a microbe doesn't change into a human being, which is what the basic underlying evolutionary view is. So yes, things change within their own kind, but that's not really evolution as defined. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, on the, you know, the science of dating and this dichotomy issue. Um, so we talk about kind of presenting creation to unbelievers, but, you know, when you're in the circle of believers, there's a lot of confusion there as well. And one of the encounters that I had, um, I handled it this way. I knew the person carried around a Bible. I knew they went to church on Sunday. I knew they believed in Jesus, but they were definitely throwing out creation and they were into evolution. And I said, do you believe that Jesus turned water into wine? Well, yes. Okay, at the moment that he did that, take some of that wine, put it in a test tube, give it to all your scientists, and you tell them to tell you how old that is. And the thing that's often forgotten is is that God has the ability to create things that have the appearance of age. It's valid science how things ferment and how wine is created. That's valid science. But God has the ability to preempt that. And it gets a little philosophical, which came first, the chicken or the egg. How old was Adam when he was created? I'm curious, does Adam have a belly button? You know, I mean, it, yeah. you know, he, he can just create something right there, right now, that has the appearance of age. He has done it. it it's, it's, it's a fact. So, anyway, that's my two cents on that. Right. Well, it's a very good two cents, that's for sure. Um. Okay, well, thank you all. It is 10 o'clock, and we should uh, get, some, get some refreshments as quickly as we can. So we have a presentation coming up here uh, from some couple of missionaries in Thailand. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that 
the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. So we're just grateful, grateful for that. Help us to help us to really understand and believe your promises. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.